Hello and welcome to Retrieving the Social Sciences, a production of the Center for Social Science Scholarship. I'm your host, Ian Anson, Associate Professor of Political Science here at UMBC. On today's show, as always, we'll be hearing from UMBC faculty, students, visiting speakers, and community partners about the social science research they've been performing in recent times. Qualitative, quantitative, applied, empirical, normative, On Retrieving the Social Sciences, we bring the best of UMBC's social science community to you. At the outset of the COVID-19 pandemic, I recall feeling a sense of relief at suddenly being able to work from home all the time. I'd be able to write and teach from the comfort of my basement office, and I'd come up for meals and the occasional chat with my wife before she headed back up and I headed back down. And of course, my cat Ellie benefited the most from this time period because she was able to occupy my lap virtually nonstop throughout the workday. But in thinking about this transition to home life, I'm reminded that I'm incredibly fortunate to have a safe and comfortable space in which to do my work. You know, for a lot of people, returning home exposed them to even less safety than they had at their workplaces or their colleges or other spaces where they would escape the conditions of their living arrangements. And at the most extreme, some people during COVID have been exposed even more to domestic violence than ever before. According to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, more than 10 million adults in the U.S. experience domestic violence annually, a staggering number. And an incredible one in four women and one in 10 men experience sexual violence, physical violence, and or stalking by an intimate partner during their lifetime. In 2018, the most recent year for which we have a good estimate, partner violence accounted for 20% of all violent crime. Not only is domestic violence a terrible outcome for those afflicted by it, the statistics make it clear that it should be viewed as a national emergency. That's why I'm so grateful for the opportunity to bring you an interview today with two members of the Domestic Violence Action Research Collective, or DVARC. This group emerged in 2016 as a partnership between the D.C. Coalition Against Domestic Violence and Dr. Nkiru Nawalezi of UMBC. Dr. Nawalezi is an assistant professor at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and affiliate faculty at Yale University's Center for Interdisciplinary Research on AIDS. She earned her doctorate in ecological community psychology at the Michigan State University and has additional graduate certifications in college teaching, community engagement, and quantitative research methods. Her research examines the ecological factors that enhance equity within and across the domestic violence housing continuum. Her work has been funded by the National Institutes of Mental Health, the State of Michigan, and the Center for Victim Research. I was also joined in conversation with Liz Odongo, who serves the D.C. Coalition Against Domestic Violence as Director of Grants and Programs. Liz has been with the coalition for over a decade and has conducted national and international training to address violence against women. Liz oversees the delivery of all programming and activities serving the mission and the goals of the coalition. She also directs the agency's programmatic efforts and coordinates citywide task forces. Liz has developed curricula for the U.S. military, the State Department, various government agencies, including law enforcement and local organizations, and testified for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee on Sexual Assault and the Peace Corps. Prior to joining the coalition, Liz worked as a domestic violence systems advocate and educator at the Women's Center and was a program officer in the Global Health, Population, and Nutrition Department at the Academy for Educational Development. Liz obtained her master's degree in international training and education from American University. I'm so glad to bring you this important conversation. Let's listen in right now.
All right. Today, I am so excited to welcome two fantastic guests to the podcast. Uh, today, we have Liz Odongo and Dr. Nkiru Nawalezi here um, to tell us a little bit about uh, some research that they've been doing as part of the Domestic Violence Action Research Collective, which I really love that name. Uh, first of all, thank you so much to both of you for agreeing to be here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure to meet you, Ian. Awesome. Well, so I wanted to start out by just saying that, you know, we're often really excited to have researchers on the podcast. Obviously, this is a, a podcast that features social science research. But again, like, as I was saying with the, the title of this, uh, this collective, right, it's rare to have members of a research team with a name that to me is evocative of like a group of superheroes. It kind of sounds a little bit Justice League, you know, in, in terms of its, its title. Um, and so I wanted to know a little bit, and I'm sure our listeners having heard this intro, I uh, want to know a little bit about the kind of backstory of this collective. What is this collective? How did it get started? And what kind of work um, do you all do? Yeah, and I'm happy to pick it up, Liz. Is that, a, is that good? Please. Yeah. So back in 2015, um, I got an email from Liz, right? I think so. Liz and Carmen. Yeah, yeah. I got an email from Liz saying, hey, and I'm definitely paraphrasing. Hey, heard you were cool. <laughs> think that there's some stuff that we might be able to like overlap on. Would you be interested in like us talking about your work in domestic violence? And I was like, absolutely. I'd be, I'd be really um, interested in talking about that. So I went in, we had a conversation. Um, and in that conversation, we talked about the needs that there was a data gap, right? There were some things that the coalition was really interested in um, questions that they had, things that they wanted to look at over time, um, just interesting ideas that they wanted to collaborate with the researcher on. Um, and I was very much excited. I'm a community psychologist by training. I really, really value um, and forefront how practitioners and survivors um, really identify the community, the issues that are going on in the community and the kinds of things that they would need in order to support collective well-being and liberation. So I cared a lot about that. Um, and what we decided in that meeting was that we could bring together multiple other domestic violence practitioners and policy folks and and just people we knew in the area who might be also interested in some of these kind of data gaps and questions that the coalition had. And after that, I think we had our first conversation went really well, and we ended up having three to four more. Um, and it was a very highly, I structured it, and um, it was a highly facilitated, very structured set of conversations. And the group just really melded. Like, we really got along really well. We came up with some really interesting ideas, things that felt really important to us. Um, and by the fourth time we met and got together, they were like, should we, we should probably stay together. <laughs> stay together and do some work. Like this thinking yeah. has been so helpful. Like we should probably keep going. Um, would we be, you know, would everybody be interested in that? And that was five years ago, I think. Yeah. Six. Um, six years ago. My goodness. Wow. That was six years ago. And so the group um, definitely has had multiple iterations, but that's a little bit about how we got started. Liz, did I miss anything? But it's, I think one of the the things that I love so much about the group is sort of reflected just even in this question, right, is for each of us um, who are members of DVRC, there is so much that we get from the group and we don't realize that we're giving. 
right? Mm -hmm. And so just even thinking about how we formed and what brings us to the table and the key pieces that stand out for me, I just, I remember being in this space where one of the key roles of the coalition is around advocacy, right? And it's, it's advocating with government agencies around their need to do better, screen better, to ask about someone's um, history or experiences with domestic violence and safety. It's with the council and around budget advocacy. And they always want numbers, right? Public health, what you need are the numbers. And in, mm -hmm. in our field, we don't have numbers. We're not funded to give numbers. And we had come across some of Incurio's um, incredible work in, in the domestic violence field. Incurio is one of those people where you're just so fortunate to cross paths. And then she was local and we get to um, connect. And she was so gracious to just sort of sit down and start to share her expertise. And from that just came this these conversations that, there are really, really great experts in DC doing this work and operating in our silos and you know, public health, right? You're just trying to put the band-aids on. You're trying to figure out how to stop the bleeding. And when we came together, we were able to start to see that maybe we could push beyond that and, mm. and be able to collaborate around data and um, data analysis that helped actually increase the funding, increase the awareness. Um, and so it was just such a gift that I think every one of us feels so good about being a part of. Wow. I mean, what I really love about both of your answers is that it speaks to, first of all, the incredible relevance of what you all are doing, right? I mean, sometimes as social scientists, I think we can feel a little bit like we're constrained to the ivory tower of publishing articles. Maybe a few people here and there are going to read, and maybe we're contributing to some literature that's going to have a, you know, a, a contribution to theory development. Um, but this stuff is really having an impact as you're as you're describing on the policy process on you know dollars and cents and how they're distributed and ultimately hopefully right real people and that's an incredible testament to what you all are doing in this in this research and um, I think also as as you described I mean the notion that to make these cases to actual stakeholders requires some degree of evidence and that is a really cool thing right here on retrieving the social sciences we're you know a lot of the time talking about you know research methods and and how we arrive at conclusions um, and recommendations and um I think in, in both of your answers, the kind of things that you're talking about, right, having that sort of data-driven approach um, to being able to, to show these, these stakeholders kind of what, uh, what needs to be done is urgently needed in, in more fields than this. And so to, see, to hear that success story is really heartening. It makes me feel really great. Um, especially also to think about, right, we as social scientists, often we can get stuck not just in the ivory tower, right, but kind of in these individual sort of silos ourselves as kind of individual researchers. And so it's such a great story and it makes me feel so um, so empowered myself just to hear about it, right? To, to hear of you all getting together and sort of finding these commonalities and then not just dropping the ball, but then joining forces meaningfully. Like that's such a, a such a rare thing <laughs> in, in real terms, um, especially as, as you're doing that sort of across professional settings. That's a really, really awesome thing. Um, and so I'm so excited that, that this has been such a great success story and I'm really excited to feature it um, on the podcast to, to hear a little bit more about what it is that you all have been doing uh, with that collaboration. And so um, I know that a lot of your research um, and, and the collective um, itself is obviously focused on the role of domestic violence and understanding broader patterns, right? Patterns in housing insecurity, among others. And so I wanted to get a little bit into the actual content of what you found in terms of your research, right? What are some broad takeaways that you could tell our listeners about um, in terms of these patterns and, and the effects of domestic violence on, let's say, housing security and, and the, essentially the lived experiences of, of people out there? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one thing I want to say, Ian, based on 
what you just said is that not only does the partnership increase impact, but it also increases quality of the research. Yeah. Right. So yeah. it's not just about like the we did research and it's good and it's going to have it does have and is having this impact on community. But we also, for those of you who might not be who might not be know a ton about community based work, but being with the community and collaborating and developing and implementing research makes the study more rigorous, yes. makes the study more um align like increase actually increases ecological validity like it makes better science right. when you're able to do it with the people who are directly when you're able to create the work with people who are directly um, impacted by the issue and support people who are impacted by the issue so i just want to add that participation so is yeah <laughs> yeah it's a way to increase validity of your work um so that being said <laughs> we had this really you know we we were meeting for about a year and one of the things that actually and i say we're meeting for about a year with the with the designing because one of the things that came up relatively quickly um is the relationship between housing and stability and surviving violence we live in a very for those of you who might not be familiar um with how deeply impactful um gentrification has been to our city and the way of uh, displacement as a result of violence many survivors were experiencing displacement as a result of violence and because we live in such a highly gentrified city um trying to find and navigate traditional housing markets were pretty impossible it's impossible for folks with six-figure jobs it's certainly impossible for folks who are navigating um leaving an abusive relationship and so that came up across all of our, you know, across all the sectors, everyone's like housing, 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 it's really problematic. One of the things then that um, we learned from our group is that the primary place where survivors would probably go to get housing, if they did not necessarily appraise themselves as survivors, right, as experiencing domestic violence, because that matters a lot, you might not go to a domestic violence shelter or get seek domestic violence programming, if you don't necessarily understand your experience as being abusive. You just know that you had this relationship, the person did a bunch of things, um, and now you are on the street or have, are threatened of being on the streets. So we went to the single, one of the, one of the single points of entry for families who were um, homeless or are, were at risk of being unhoused. And one of the things that practitioners told us is that when survivors went to that space to go get housing through the city, and one of the things that we that they said is that when people go there, they're oftentimes not able to get housing. They're not, they don't leave there with any kind of housing support. Wow. So that was really difficult for us because we know that that was, a, again, the primary source where people go if they have families, um, if survivors have families. And so we asked like, well, what do you think is going on, right? They're like, well, there's policies in place. There's things in place to help survivors move through that system with a bit more ease. Um, they should have priority. You know, there's at the time there was this thing that said if um, people in the city who were not, who didn't have DC residents or didn't have a DC ID, they should still be able to get housing because of the dynamics of violence. Sure. Um, if somebody is fleeing um, violence, they should be able to have access. So there's these two policies in place. People should be able, survivors should be able to have high priority. They should be connected to a domestic, domestic violence um, worker inside of the system, and they should not be turned away if they don't have DC residency, right? Mm -hmm. 
And we've, well, and the anecdotal evidence was that none of that was happening or that happened very rarely, right? People would be deemed ineligible and not be able to access housing because of multiple things. Mm -hmm. So that seemed like, okay, that's the point of intervention for us. That's the place where we want to start to create a study looking at the screening practices and policies that providers were using in order to determine eligibility for survivors. I give you that long intro because the we found maybe two to three things that I think are pretty important. The first is simply about mass, right? So we interviewed people, or we sat in the waiting room of this particular housing system for a year. And we screened about 779 people. Wow. Um, and about a third of them stated that the reason why they were coming in to the system was because of an abusive partner, some experience with what we would have identified as uh, violence, right? So that's about 291 people. That tells us a lot. A third is a lot of your population, right? Um, just in our particular, just of the people that we reached out to the, the days that we went. Um, and of that, we asked for, we, you know, we talked to 41 people within that 291 who agreed to have a conversation with us about their experience after they went through the screening process. So we met them right before they went in, say, hey, you know, are you eligible? Would you come and talk to us? And then we tried to talk with them within a week of them, um, two to three days of them getting um, their eligibility determination. And what we found is that only four people, four people who were eligible for violence or eligible for um, or who were survivors of violence who had sought immediate support because they needed um, housing got immediately placed, meaning wow. into a shelter, into any kind of immediate hotel situation, something where they could get immediate housing. Um, and about half of the folks we talked to were deemed ineligible. Most people had to come back to this system at least two to five times before they got an eligibility determination, meaning they could go, you can have some type of resource in this system from the city. Wow. And so that was really, I mean, that's a really critical thing to name and say is that when people who are in the city who are eligible for housing services as survivors, the likelihood that they're going to get the support they need when they first enter in is extremely low. Right. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you, you think about just what's going on in those people's lives in the interim, even of those four, you said two to five visits to determine the eligibility. I mean, there's some really harrowing things that could be going on, I'm sure. And yeah, that's, that's heavy. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's difficult because they're coming from many have this particular place was the last like resort for many mm. folks, right? right? They had went to at least two to three other places, formal places. Oftentimes they had stayed with their family and friends. They had gone to um, they've done everything to try yeah. to maintain housing in the city. Um, and the other thing that we found pretty disheartening was the idea that survivors, um, the ways that providers were engaging with survivors, oftentimes was as if they didn't believe them mm. or as if they um, blamed them for the abuse or would just tell them to do things that would actually increase their risk of violence rather than support their safety. So they either didn't ask about the violence or um, didn't believe them when they said, or they said, you know, 
it sounds like you're a survivor. You're not necessarily, it's not like you need housing. It just sounds like you, um, you know, that you're surviving violence and we don't really serve people like that. Right. So there's this really huge disconnect between the relationship of displacement as a result of violence and the seeking of housing. Um, And then we think about the idea that even if they do pursue the likelihood that they're going to be deemed eligible for housing and receive some kind of immediate housing support that was incredibly necessary was low. Wow. So Liz, why do you think that is that so many workers seem maybe not dismissive, but sort of just it, not comprehending, I guess, the the reality of these individual situations. You know, if I if I put myself in the shoes of someone who is navigating homelessness with individuals every day, I can see how it's really easy to just be overwhelmed by the sheer need and the lack of of available services. And and so, it, it I mean, it's easy to sort of think about and empathize with what it's like to sit in that chair and trying to help. And you can't really solve the problem, right? Because there's just not enough. Right. Um, and what you're hearing are horrible stories, and and what you're trying to do is is figure out how to best support them. But you you know maybe they need more than what they came with today to qualify for this program, or there is this an assumption that the person seems a little bit off. So are they lying to you to try to get access to something? And you just start to see all the ways in which maybe this doesn't just quite add up. I do believe that people come to the the work with the best of intentions, but in a in a an environment of such scarcity, it just becomes impossible to 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 meet everybody's need. But I do, you know, when I think then again about what we heard from survivors around how they were treated, and some of their uh, the feelings of being disrespected and not believed and minimized or not even asked, right? It that part to me is not it's inexcusable. So it's these two realities that I, I don't know. I don't know how to wrap my head around them, Yeah. but I know that it's, um, it's why we do the work, right. Is because there's gotta be something better. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I can't imagine doing that job on a day-to-day basis. It must be just an incredibly challenging emotionally and psychologically to, to make those determinations and to, to try to do that. And it does speak, I think, to the to the notion that you're you're driving at, right? Which is that this is a broader. <laughs> this is not about individuals making these determinations. It's about policy, and this is about broader frameworks um, of assistance. So, um, yeah, this is obviously really important stuff. Um, and I'm so glad that that your group is doing it. And you know, I, I want to uh, ask a, a couple more questions about um, essentially how you're conducting this research. And so we've heard a little bit about um, this this incredible, um, you know, I guess data set, you could call it that, but it's also an experience, right? It's kind of experiential um, uh, sort of research uh, methodology, right? Where you're getting into this uh, setting with, I think you said over 700 um, instances where you're, you're at that moment of the case review, right? Um, so, so tell us a little bit more about these research methods that you're employing and um, kind of how you came to adopt these, these methods for this particular topic. And, um, you know, is it, is it, true that you know maybe you need to to think differently about methodology in this case than if you were studying maybe other other topics yeah i love that question because um absolutely i think it's the is it true <laughs> that we think differently about methods absolutely yeah. so we chose to use a qualitative interpretive thematic analysis well a qualitative approach and then we use an interpretive thematic analysis for our data analysis process um, and the reason for that is because there are so few 
surveys or tools like how do what what is the survey available right. that would allow for us to understand the incredible complexity of navigating being surviving violence and being unhoused and engaging in the intersection of provider care and housing outcomes right like that is a very difficult that would be a very difficult study to design quantitatively and it's, if it was difficult to de to design qualitatively right yeah. Was we made a lot of decisions, a lot of methodological points around um, decision points around when do we talk to survivors? Because the other component is just the type of the sample, right? We're yeah. talking to people who are either actively surviving harm, so might still be with their abusive partners or actively unhoused, right? So which means that they we might not be able to reach them after they leave this space, right? We're wow. dealing with people who just had this really like potentially negative encounter with a system, mm -hmm. right? And likely no place to go after we have engaged with them. So there's all of those are all experiential like truths about how people are navigating this space and methodological considerations. How do you think about getting the best type of data? What does that look like? Um, in a way that is both trauma-informed and survivor-centered wow. and culturally relevant and supportive, right? Wow. Where do you go? Who do you talk to? Or how do you how do you structure this space in a way that doesn't feel like additionally traumatizing, right? And get the most accurate and clear data. So um, there's a lot of decisions that we made together about and a lot of like iterating and reiterating and making new decisions. Um, what I can share one thing and then I'll pause. One thing that we initially wanted to do um, was interview survivors. We had worked with that system I was telling you about to like have a private space inside of the institution. Uh, but come to find without within maybe two, three interviews, we're like, oh no, 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 this is not gonna work. Right? Because <laughs> really? they just got told that they probably they weren't gonna get housed. And even the space in and of itself was so activating, right. right? They were worried. They were, it was just too much. We're like, okay, yeah, we can't stay here. They need to like leave this place to go somewhere else, right? Um, and I think that those kinds of, we again, we consider them experiential decisions, but they're also methodological decisions, right? Yeah. How do you ask them? How do you ask questions about uh, where you're going to go next when there is no, we don't know as, as researchers where people are going to be and they don't know. So, and I'll also say one other thing that I think this is good for all research to do, researchers to do. I learned this earlier in my career. We designed an interview guide collaboratively. That's another piece. All of this was participatory. So we designed the interview guide collaboratively. collaboratively. We talked to survivors and did a cognitive interview, which means, have you heard of this? It means that you asked the question, like asked the question as you had intended, and then asked people to give me feedback. I would ask the survivor, when I asked this question, how did you hear it? How did you understand what I just asked you? What was the, what do you think was the intention behind this question? Mm -hmm. What kind of words came up for you, right? So you ask them to, as a, a piloting, we did also pilot, but the cognitive interview really allows for us to make sure that the intention behind our question was aligned with what, with the kind of responses we want to get. So that was useful too. Um, before, and then we also piloted with three to four people in our population. So there's a lot of things I could go on about. <laughs> I definitely can hear that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, uh, it's remarkable um, the, the degree of thought that needs to go into this particular kind of, um, of interviewing and 
uh, just in general, sort of just contacting this population. Um, it, I mean, really, that's that's fascinating. Uh, Liz, did you have anything to add on the the methodological front? I think what was just so eye opening to me, and it sort of shaped my um, understanding going forward in this work, is you know, we often see victims of domestic violence or survivors as people that have experienced harm. Mm-hmm. But what what was so different about this um, research project was seeing them as experts in navigating the systems and, and that just the dignity and respect that comes with that in itself and paying for their time and making sure they had transportation and just, it, it was such um, a shift in how we, I, I, in my field, really work with survivors um, and has shaped our work going forward. So the cross learning that happens through this project, cross disciplines was, you know, is was phenomenal. That's amazing. Yeah, the, everything that both of you are saying resonates so much with me, and in terms of some of some of the thinking that I've done in response to a lot of the guests that have come on the podcast, right. Um, I'm not a qualitative uh, scholar. I do a lot of quantitative research, and a lot of my stuff is like sort of large end survey experiments, that kind of thing. Um, and I've learned so much from from this conversation and from others, um, just about this this notion of collaboratively producing knowledge with alongside right our our research subjects, <laughs> right? Because it's it's not even really um, sort of a, a nomenclature that fits anymore, right? This kind of uh, this kind of approach is to think about um, how we can again, treat our our subjects in heavy quotes as experts in terms of their knowledge of systems that we're only just trying to understand from from a very outside perspective. And so um yeah, this is this is, you know, I I'm sure I'm not the only one to say, right? This is very cutting edge work and stuff that I think has broad implications for the rest of the social sciences. So really, really valuable, fantastic um stuff. And I wanted to ask, you know, on that note, um, what's next? What what are we what, what can we expect from from this group? Um, I think maybe uh, Liz is is uh, is eager to, to tell us a bit. But so what we've decided to do really is spend a little bit of time building on the sort of cross training and collaboration that happens and helping support each other in some of our individual work. So, um, you know, like you you take the the a sabbatical or break from the primary purpose and, and really work on some things that have been coming up for different partners and building our understanding as we sort of plan. What comes next? I know that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of interest in terms of restorative justice and how that factors into um, working with people who cause harm and and creating opportunities um, aside from the legal system and policing. Um, there's a lot of discussion, or, you know, continued discussion around housing. And you know, one of the questions you asked in around you know for people providing services in the homeless field. What is it like for them to have to navigate the scarcity of resources and how does that translate into trauma-informed care for them and for the people that they're serving? Um, and so there's just such big needs, really sort of trying to spend some time in figuring out where our passion as a group continues to guide us um, in uh, honoring our commitments to the survivors who participated in the study. And Kira, you want to add something? No, I think that was perfect. Yeah, I agree. I, I would agree. Stronger. <laughs> I, I agree as well. I mean, this this kind of summative statement about honoring the, um, you know, lived experience of the people that that we're working with in this research is is so important. And um, yeah, the the notion that you're going to allow sort of the passion of the group to lead the research inquiry is something that is so critical and so important. And so 
Um, I think I've already, you know, if not learned, you know, reinforced so many things that I, in this discussion, um, hold to be really important for conducting social science research that has high impact. Um, but I also want to remind, you know, both of you that, you know, we have many student listeners out there, um, student listeners who are maybe encountering some of these, um, some of these terms, some of these ideas, things like cognitive interviewing for the first time. Um, and with that being said, you know, we only have a couple more minutes left, but I wanted to ask you really briefly to just say, um, and I always ask this of, of my guests, if you had any advice for students who are sort of coming up through the social science disciplines, thinking about maybe getting inspired by some of the work that you are doing, some of the work that some of our other guests are doing, and um, who are hoping maybe in the future to go pro, as I say, in the social sciences, uh, what kind of words of, of wisdom, of guidance could you, could you give them? Knowing full well already that I think that any student listeners that's that's heard this uh, this interview has probably gained a lot already. Any any additional words of wisdom for our students? Well, I can just add, you know, I'm not coming from the discipline or the field, but what I what I learned from this project and this collaboration, and generally speaking, is that it's in group conversations where you get to test out an idea and really get get insight and perspective from other people. So talk to people. You don't have to um, commit to anything. You don't have to divulge your plan or your approach or, you know, I'm not sure what proprietary things factor into, you know, being a student. But um, the greatest outcomes often come when you have the most input. And so just email a professor, talk to your peers, you know, have coffee with some of the other students in your in your class. And don't be afraid to sort of workshop an idea with people who are navigating similar questions. So important. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I think the other thing is that um, research is research and the process of creating data, I think, is one of the most artistic, creative processes that we have. So just because you don't see what you want to do doesn't mean that you can't do it how you want to do it. Right. So I think. We really need, I think science is one of those really incredible places where um, in creating science and working with people to create data is a space where like there's millions of possibilities to do this work. Um, and so, yeah, I, wanna, I really want to encourage people to see, particularly students, to know that if you are interested in doing research, we are with you. Like, I, I think we need, like, we really need people who think big, who think expansively and who think in different ways um, to be interested and do it because there's lots of different ways to, there's like lots of different ways to do this, um, to have the kind of impact and, and things that you want to have. So we need you and we need the way that you want to do it. Fantastic inspiration. I'm, I'm galvanized. I'm ready to go <laughs> get out there in the field and and do research of my own now. Um, thanks to thanks to this. Um, thanks to both of you. I really really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I wish that we could talk all day. <laughs> we'll have to let you go here, but um, we'll definitely have you back on the pod at some point to hear more about some of the fantastic work that that your uh, collective is doing in the future. Um, Dr. Nkiru Nabalezi and Liz Odongo, thank you again so much for appearing. Thank you. Thank you. Campus Connections. Campus Connections. Campus Connections. Campus Connections. Campus Connections. Now it's time for Campus Connections, a part of the podcast where we connect today's featured content, as always, to the work of others at UMBC. 
Our intern Alex Andrews is back from a restorative winter break to bring us yet another relevant and timely connection. Take it away, Alex. Thanks, Dr. Anson. This week for Campus Connections, we'll be highlighting anger reactivity and treatment adherence among court-mandated partner violent men. It's quite a mouthful, but it's a study from the UMBC Psychology Department written by John Persampier in 2009. This study used a group of men who were court-mandated domestic abusers. These men were put into simulated situations with the goal of measuring their anger and irritability to see if it was associated with their physical and or psychological abuse in the past. The study actually even went a step further to find out if those who reported more anger were less likely to show up for more court-appointed treatment. And as it turned out, not only would that be true, but those who showed more and more anger had a greater history of abuse. That's all for this Campus Connection. Back to you, Dr. Anson. Thanks again, Alex, for that great summary. Just a reminder, Alex writes and produces these segments, and as always, we're so grateful for his excellent work on the pod. Join us next time for yet another exciting update from the world of UMBC Social Science. Until then, keep questioning. Retrieving the Social Sciences is a production of the UMBC Center for Social Science Scholarship. Our director is Dr. Christine Mallinson, our associate director is Dr. Felipe Filomeno, and our production intern is Alex Andrews. Our theme music was composed and recorded by Dewan Moreland. Find out more about CS3 at socialscience.umbc.edu. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, where you can find full video recordings of recent CS3 events. Until next time, keep questioning.